This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. A great honor. It's a thrill to be able to introduce Barry Lopez, to welcome him to UC San Diego and to the Hel- Helen Edison Lecture Series. And I gave some thought to how to introduce Barry. Um, one could say that he is Barry Lopez, naturalist and author. And while that's true, um, I found myself at, a, at, 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 a, at slight odds with that because he is so much more. Furthermore, I don't have any standing in either of those areas. And so not being a scientist, as I read his books, I don't have a naturalist's or an environmentalist's background, yet when I read Barry Lopez, I find myself so enmeshed so quickly in the landscapes that he describes that I feel as though I'm a, I'm a scientist. And while I've written, I would certainly not consider myself an author with a capital A, and yet, and I've tried this, you can take your finger and you can drop it on any page in any of Barry's books and you will discover a sentence that you wish you could possibly write someday. So when you read him, you're engaged and enmeshed in the act of writing. I read a number of things, and I decided at some point I would like to take notes so I would have something to talk to you about. And I would start reading uh, an essay or a piece, or a s- whether large or small. And 10 seconds in, I was so in love with the story that I forgot <laughs> that I should be taking notes. And I began to be in love with the storytelling of of Barry Lopez, and this is how I think I would like to introduce him, as a master storyteller who tells stories about the human condition on this wonderful blue planet we share. They can be holy and small stories, or they can be large stories of awe-inspiring landscapes, but whatever the story it is, it is a story about how we share a space and a place together. And I'm so pleased to welcome you, Barry. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much, Steve. We should say that, that we had never met or spoken with each other, and uh, when you called me, uh, we instantly were like you know, two kids with just the right kind of toys. <laughs> it was true. And we, we took off from there. So Steve and I have had a couple of discussions. Wish you'd been there. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, but we... we, we been deliberate about saving some stories. We're saying to each other, don't, uh, don't tell me now. <laughs> let an audience have this story. Exactly. So well, our first conversation was actually on Christmas Eve, and I was, I was very embarrassed to call because it was Christmas Eve, and I didn't want to in- intrude on your, on your family time, but I'd had repeated emails from Dan saying, you'd better sort the logistics of, the, of, the, of this event out. And so I called thinking we would have a a four-minute chat, and we would discover who would want to sit on which side. <laughs> and an hour later, we were <laughs> still talking. And, uh, and so I did want to ask you then, and so let me just ask you now, this is a, such a personal question, because I came to your work, as I think many people did, through Arctic Dreams, right. uh, the, the book in 1986 that won the National Book Award and has been so important to so many of us. And I'd like to ask you a little, if you don't mind sharing, oh, no, how that book came in into your mind, into existence, and given how much the Arctic has changed, how have your feelings about the book changed over the course of the years since it's been written? Well, you know, there's a curious thing that happens to you when you write or uh, c- 
conduct music or play music or write music, and that is you're on the inside doing something and someone else on the outside can ask you a question about it that never occurred to you mm -hmm. because the questions that people ask about how work gets created are hardly ever in your mind, you know, and it's sometimes awkward to say, I have no idea, you know, and, and <laughs> but what that means, I think, for people who are composers or choreographers or painters, you, you that, that's the whole point, you know. I said to somebody once, if I caught myself thinking, I would know I wasn't writing. <laughs> because writing's not about thinking, it's about an immersion in language and event and bringing those things together in such a way that a stranger to the event can understand something more than superficial about the event. So this is a preface to s answering the question, I guess, and that is, I didn't start, I, I mean, I don't even know if I started out as a writer. I remember at the age of 15, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and my mother married again, we moved to New York City, and I was the odd kid out, hmm. because my world, you know, the Mojave Desert or Grand Canyon or, you know, the beaches around Los Angeles, the, uh, nobody there in New York knew anything about that. They had a very superficial idea about what California was. So I found myself telling stories to my classmates and kind of legitimizing myself, I guess, by seeing if I could evoke a place, a presence, a person that brought them to life. Hmm. And it just, I never thought of myself really as a writer, but after a while of writing that on my 1040, form, you know, <laughs> I, I realized that that's, you know, in inevitably that's what yeah. I was. But I did maintain uh, in my mind a distinction between fiction and nonfiction. And, and one thing I realized but couldn't have articulated as a young man was that, that the difference often is that, that fiction, its foundation is emotional truth. And the foundation of good nonfiction work is, is factual truth. If I write something about a polar bear, then the reader has to be able to go to a place where I don't control anything and verify that information. But you don't do that with, with, um, with fiction. But I also learned about the difference between the two of them by watching my hands at the typewriter. I still use a typewriter. If I'm writing a piece of fiction, I know it's a piece of fiction, but it's verified for me at the end in that my hands hang over the keys after I've written the last sentence, and, and then, then they drop. If I finish a piece of nonfiction, they drop immediately. And what that tells you is that nonfiction ends on the page, mm. and, non uh, and fiction ends off the page. So, here's a somebody who's writing like I am, and I'm maintaining a difference in my mind between fiction and nonfiction. But I also have always played, I guess, with fiction, uh, temporal components in it, or um, uh, the, the, way the, the way the language can cascade and how you can stop it and make it do something else, those kinds of, you know, just fooling around with your stuff. 
Um, the, the question of what I think has happened in the Arctic since I wrote Arctic Dreams, which is based on research in the late 70s and early 80s, is not something I think about very often mm -hmm. because although Arctic Dreams is a work of nonfiction, it in some ways is like a novel. And so uh, a, a book that I wrote before that of Wolves and Men, when it was 25 years old, the publisher said, would you write an afterword bringing us up to date about wolves? And I did that. But if somebody came to me and said, could you write now that there's been all this change in the Arctic, could you write a, a kind of um, assessment of the change for Arctic Dreams? I was asked and said, absolutely not. It's, it's not a book that can be updated. It's, it's not, um, even though it is nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So like you or anybody else who reads papers and pays attention to global climate change issues, yes, the changes have been huge. I've, I've traveled up there quite a bit since I was there in the early, se or in the late 70s. And the change is, is, is really mind boggling. But that's not the book that somebody would go to to find those things out. Mm -hmm. what I think what you go to that book for is something like the way you would, even though it's a contradiction now, something I, s I realize it's like going back to a novel. Uh. There's a key in a lock, and that's what that book was for the Arctic. Well, I was reading it, um, uh, rereading it, I should say, when I was studying a Mahler symphony. And it occurred to me that there is such uh, an affinity between those two, oh, really? two things. And the reason for that is the sort of cross-wiring of the largest possible vista to the smallest possible kind of population of that right. vista with, with detail. I mean, I, when, I, when I think of the Arctic, and I haven't, I've been above the Arctic Circle, but I haven't been to the, in quotes, the Arctic in mm -hmm. the way that you wrote about it. But I think of it so then as a, as a, as a, as a, as a non-visitor in these kinds of, as a sort of vast unmarked space that, that doesn't have architecture. I don't really, I don't know how to populate it myself. And yet when I read your work about it, you see that it's full of life and full of stories and those stories are so passionately right. rendered. And it feels to me like Mahler that way and that you have these enormous arches where you feel that you're, you're dealing with uh, a, 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 an expanse of music that you couldn't possibly cross, and yet as you step foot on it, you step foot into this kind of extraordinarily lively environment. It's endlessly fascinating to me how you, someone like me who comes as more than naive to music, um, you know, the first things that I'm listening to when I'm trying to understand what, how to, how to, how to bring this to life on a page is um, the Swan of Tunella or mm -hmm. you know, some, some piece of music that so clearly evokes the, the, the gloom, if you will, of, uh, of dusk. Dusk mm -hmm. is so long in the Arctic mm -hmm. um, and dawn as well. Uh, it's, it's it, it, the, the time it takes to emerge from darkness to full light, it, it's almost all day. And that's what I would feel about that uh, a piece of music like this one of Tunella. Mm -hmm. But it, it's endlessly fascinating to me how you could think of Mahler, and as soon as you said that, I thought, oh, I never thought of that before, but yes. Yes, that's right. 
And I go back to these pieces of music I listened to when I was young or middle-aged or ancient, whatever, and, <laughs> and think, oh, that's like this. I remember uh, when I was a, a, a student, um, how did this happen? Um, I, I was so thoroughly confused by the difference between metaphor and reality that I went to university declaring a major, as an, uh, uh, saying that I wanted to major in aeronautical engineering. I didn't any more belong in engineering than um, I belonged in outer space. <laughs> I had no facility <laughs> with it. What I'd done was the story of Icarus flying too close to the sun and the, 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 the balletics, if you will, of birds. O all of this made me think that I could be an aeronautical engineer. <laughs> you were in the air already. <laughs> I, yeah, I, so, well, <laughs> fortunately I, mean, I got way. out of engineering <laughs> and, uh, and went over to the part of, uh, of formal education that I belonged in. But um, I, uh, I remember as a 17-year-old sitting in a calculus class um, watching the professor, a man named Mast, um, diagram on the ordinate and abscissa, uh, abscissa, the rising asymptotic line that gets closure up here through the calculus. You know, it's not we don't need to go into all of that. It's pretty wild. Um, but what it requires is uh, uh, the the belief that a gap that can't be closed can be closed mm, yeah. with mathematically. And as soon as I saw that on the blackboard, I thought of Soren Kierkegaard, philosopher, and um, what he called a leap of faith. And in that moment, I knew what an education was. Yeah, that something is going on in the mind of a philosopher, and something is going on in the mind of a mathematician. And if you look at them both as metaphorical expressions of a kind of truth we know, then you see... If you have a facility with that, or you have a facility with this, then that becomes your major metaphor, and the prayer that you have is you never mistake your metaphor for reality. And that leaves you open. You know, when people come to me and say, you know, I, I want to take this story that you've made and turn it into this, turn it into a theatrical production or something like that, uh, do I have your permission? And I think, what, are you kidding me? Um, <laughs> I don't, how could I own it? But, you know, something moved through me, and then it became this, which is a story. And here's somebody who's a painter or, or a composer or somebody, somebody I respect, like our mutual friend John Adams. And if John said, I, wa I, I, wanna, I want to m uh, in, uh, inspire or stimulate or something, I want to make something here where you've made this language on a page, I want to make notes and turn it into an auditory sensation. That's, that's the stuff, for me, of, of great culture, where nobody, nobody stands up and declares themselves uh, a genius or says that they and they alone can interpret the meaning of something that uh, no one can understand. Mm. I mean, no one, no one in their right mind would ever say that they could understand a polar bear. And no one in their right mind can, would ever be able to explain what happens in the fourth movement of the Beethoven Ninth when these tonal values become language. Mm -hmm. right. But there is a reason in that moment in the Beethoven Ninth 
why people come right up out of their seats and you turn to the person who's a stranger sitting next to you and you're in immediately in love with them. Yeah. How, yeah. How, how does that... And then you would say, you own that, you invented that, please. <laughs> you know, so that... There, there's something... This, there's a long story here, I guess, but um, we watched the rise of the sciences during the scientific revolution in Western culture in Europe, and they, they posed this to us. They said, we will now tell you the truth. Mm. So instead of going to the theater to discover the truth, or instead of listening to music to discover the truth, you were, you were told, you know, here's Boyle's laws. This, this really is the truth. I don't think so. Um, so what? So to bring us up to the modern time, here we are faced with ocean acidification, global climate change, methane gas coming up out of the tundra, and what we're relying on to understand so we can make an appropriate political response or a policy response to global climate change is the science of it. And, and where we've fallen down, I think, as artists and writers is we know that stuff and we know how to tell the truth about it. But we've allowed ourselves in the last three centuries to become a kind of warm-up band for the real truth, which is to come to us from the sciences. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is hyperbolic, you know, a little bit. But there, there is a truth in music and in language and in story that it is ungraspable. Mm -hmm. And it's the exhilaration of the presence of that that elevates a person and makes them feel a sense of self-worth and a sense of um, capability. What, you, what you're saying reminds me of, of something I wanted to ask you about, and that is the, the changing role of the elder in our, con in our contemporary culture. And I, I thought of you on Monday. I was in San Francisco where I was conducting last night in the contemporary music players. Monday after the rehearsal, it was raining in San Francisco, and it was late, and I called... I, I dialed up on my phone an Uber car. So it comes, you know, I get, I get the, it, it buzzes, my driver is on the way. And then there comes a little thing on the phone, maybe you've seen this, that says, if you would like to send us your playlist by the phone, we'll have your music in the car when, you know, when you're there. And I thought, oh my God, uh, so we can't <laughs> even, there's no moment at which we're willing to hear something or encounter something that is not completely and utterly of our choice. Right. There's no sense in which you're going to be faced with some sort of resistance to the thing that you yourself would have chosen. And I think back on the, on the formative moments of my education of, of slogging through Catullus in Latin, and I was a horrible Latin student, or trying to read you know, Henry James or, 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 or listening to the Berg Violin Concerto the first time, and I would have resisted each and every one of those Right. in favor of something I had already chosen. Right. And in, in, in terms of, in cultural terms, they have become, Alban Berg is my, my elder in a way. Right. He has helped me understand how to, how to view the world. And so when I think about, there is a question here, I promise. Uh, when I think about where we are, and if we are actually kind of self-consciously avoiding the kind of frictional response one could have with an elder who leads who demonstrates, who manifests for us, how much trouble are we actually in? How much trouble are we actually in when this is our consistent choice? So as a teacher, would you think that it's an important part of a classroom experience to accustom your students to being bewildered and um, 
working with things that they don't have uh, any immediate affection for. It, yes. I mean, is that because the, be, because this is a culture that's absolutely poisoned by celebrity, the notion of a celebrity, uh, an important person. It's it's difficult, I think, when you're growing growing into your role in society as an artist or a writer, to to understand that the trajectory is not from not being known to being known. The trajectory is from incompetence to competence. And it, it, it whether you're known or not, it is th that's a false path. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying this because you you can um, easily fall in love with what you think you know and then you see yourself as a seer you know I said to somebody once one of those impulsive things that you write down and put in your pocket because you want to use it again mm -hmm. sometime but it I said I would much rather be the reader's companion than the reader's authority mm -hmm. if I'm trying to understand something I have, an, I have an ethical obligation in nonfiction to understand it well enough to live up to the expectations of a reader who says, I would like to be informed about this, what can you tell me? Yeah. I, that has to be a bankable relationship. But in order for me to do that, I have to start out um, in ignorance. And as you grow older, you know, if you write a book and somebody says, that's a great book, and then you write another book and somebody says, that's a great book, then you can get it in your head if you're not careful that the next book you write will be a great book yeah, when great. it could just be rubbish. Yeah. Um, and, and, the, and sometimes the reason it's rubbish is because you made the mistake of thinking that you knew rather than the world knew. So if I go someplace to write about something, I often find myself talking to people I don't like because they know more than what I do about what I'm trying to understand. So you learn after a while that if you're afraid of looking like an idiot, th this is not work you want to be doing. Well, if you're afraid of looking like an idiot, I, I don't know how you go anywhere in life. I mean, I... I, I, I oh, I, yeah, <laughs> well, have you read politics? At yeah, the, at I mean... <laughs> But I mean, I, I guess I mean that in a serious way, in that one of the things that I'd love to do and that I'm passionate about is studying language. Yes. If you study a, a new language as an adult... Oh, Italian. Italian, and I did the same thing with French, and I studied German, and I, I, I yeah, moved yeah. in those places. Yeah. And so I remember learning French and living in Paris and speaking, and I went from speaking just a few words to being able to speak French. But the experience was one of going out every single day and being a, a total bumbling fool. Absolutely. And it, you have to learn, I think, oh, I figured, I had to learn how to love that and to laugh about it. And when you can do that, then people embrace you oh, in yeah. a really interesting way, I think. I, I you know, I thought about, y there's a kind of a practical mind that you have to have, at least somebody like me does when you're working. How can I get what I need out of this social situation or this encounter with animals or whatever it is? How can I, how can I become vulnerable here? Mm. And there's this, this <coughs> beautiful connection in life between, um, I think you could walk across this campus and if you weren't misunderstood, you could ask somebody, what is it that they really wanted? And a lot of what people want in contemporary society is intimacy. Mm -hmm. They want to be known and they want to know another person 
but in order to in order to achieve an intimate relationship of any sort you have to be vulnerable you have to open up and if you don't trust the situation or you don't trust the person then you're not vulnerable so we've created a culture in which people are so mistrustful of so many things they can't ever take the, it's um, it's very hard to open up and if you don't open up you you cannot achieve this intimate relationship with the world and so you feel lonely and yep. isolated yep. and i think part of what the what the arts do and certainly what writing does is and that's why i say that thing about be a reader's companion rather than the reader's authority i'm not interested in being an instructor i'm interested in watching another human being come to life well you're putting your you're underlining what i think is a key element of of teaching and here we are in you know a great at a great university and um the instant that i realized that my job was not to instruct and that teaching is a very different kind of thing to lead out literally right. from educate right. uh, is is the moment that i began to love teaching i mean i'll i'll confess that when i first started teaching i was a, i was a trained uh, a musician and i was i was getting concerts and i was really happy about that i thought you know um i'll teach for 5 years or so until my concert career takes off and then <laughs> and then i'm out of here right and the longer i taught the more i realized that if someone actually forced me at gunpoint to choose between playing concerts in in concert halls f- in front of people that I wouldn't talk to ever again or sitting in front of a class with students that I'll see twice a week for 10 weeks I would choose teaching any day it is that, the most important that's phenomenal that you would that you would realize that about yourself i mean here alex ross has written about the the remarkable capacity you have to educate us and you're saying I'd pass that up in an instant standing in front of an audience or in front of a podium with a score in front of me in order to work with young people. What ever happened to that calling that that you know you've made this indirect reference to right. to elders yes. and you know I'm this is my presumption Steve but it a hard thing to understand as you're growing up as a writer and i assume as a composer or a choreographer or whatever is that if this isn't an ethical activity in your life it's not worth pursuing and the ethical heart of it is that you have a responsibility to the listener you have a responsibility to the reader that's another imagination another intellect another history and you've got to find some way to connect there and create an intimate relationship that reader from from on my side of this has to know in the first few paragraphs i'm okay here mm. i'm not going to get 10 pages into this and made to be made to look like an idiot i i'm i'm okay in this environment and i can become open and once you're open and once you're in the story boom you're gone but but you're talking about the ethical responsibility that people like us or a lot of people like us feel which is what good is it to do this if you don't help younger people understand the complex emotions of self-assertion and gift to a society in this in this culture we're taught to to stand out to to uh, have a career arc or whatever that thing is called 
<laughs> but what, what we're really here hoping to do as we grow older is, okay, great, you, did, you wrote some beautiful music or you played beautifully or something, and then I want to say, and what else? Mm -hmm. And you've said that the what else is more important than, the, than, than this arc that would be called a career. And that, that tells you immediately that we are social animals. And if the thing that you do and the thing that I do is going to stay alive, then we have a responsibility to young people to say, I see you have an interest in this. Let's talk about it. Well, I think this is the, the, the main thing that we really, are, we really are talking about. I mean, when I read your work, I read that you're not t talking about you, you're talking about something that you've seen. In other words, the, the attention is focused outward. Right. And there's a, if you pardon the expression, a kind of welcoming space so that you're creating it on one side and you're inviting us in yeah. on the other side. So it's actually really an, ex an external space to yourself. I, I've never read something of yours or people I care about, uh, other, other writers, where I felt that the goal was to say, now look at how smart I am for having <laughs> right. written this. Right. Here we are. And I think that this is the kind of worthiness that w I at least would aspire to. I mean, I, I'll say from my side that I think growing up as a percussionist was a huge advantage because percussion was nothing. Uh, it, it, at least in the Western uh, kind of classical music, there wasn't such a thing. You know, we, we knew percussion in tr world traditions and in, in jazz, but when I first started, it was... There was no such thing as mastery because how can you master bowing a brake drum from a 1972 Valiant or something? There's, there's no Stradivarius equivalent to that. So there's no gold standard. And that meant that I never had authority because there was no authority to be had. And so now I find myself in two positions in which authority is the kind of calling card. A professor at a university and a conductor of an orchestra. And I think that what I've learned from percussion is that the authority aspect of that is the least important part yeah. of, the, of the enterprise. And that it's an interesting experience to in front of 80 to 350 people. When we did Berlioz Requiem here last year, it was 350 people on, on stage. S at some point there, simply to not know what to do, not to have the answer. And to see if people will actually trust you to figure it out with them instead of to mm -hmm. dictate it to them. Right. And I think it's a fascinating, fascinating sort of cross-wiring of the original purposes. I know in myself there's some kind of insecurity that's there as a fuel when I'm working. And it, it I, 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 I've never tried to articulate this, but here we go. Um, um, there's a desire to want to be worthy of the reader. There's a desire to want to um, meet the, the expectation that the reader has or the listener has. And you work furiously and write and write and rewrite in order to create something that can bring a reader, you know, we, all of us are entropic, you know, all of us organized around certain principles, we want our life to mean this and then it kind of disintegrates, you know. Mm. And the and much of the purpose of the arts, I think, is to reintegrate a person's sense of self. You, if you listen to a certain piece of music or you read a book, and you know, I think people just close books sometimes, and there somebody says, "What's the title of the book?" I don't know, because the title is not the important thing, n nor is the person who wrote it. The important thing is 
what happened to a human being when they read that book? Mm. What, what happened? And so, for people like us, I wonder, you know, so I'll ask you, um, is, isn't what happens when we're young, we're interested in being authoritative or uh, renowned or something mm-hmm. like that, and which is all about power. And as you grow older, you realize, oh, that's not the thing. It's way more important to be in love than to be in power. And, and the love that is driving you is, in my case, is the love of language and what it does and how incredibly subtle it is mm-hmm. and the love of what happens to another person who's a complete stranger because they read a story. You, you, just, you can see somebody light up when they're listening to music or watching uh, a performance or you know I, I love these moments where you know um, I was talking to somebody on the way over here about the Frick collections in, in, in New York and as a boy I used to go there because I was so made speechless by these Vermeers uh, by the quality of light in these Vermeer paintings and I'm sure that as a 14-year-old kid, I did one of these, like, just kind of looking around like this. Is it, hey, has anybody seen this? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but but that's, 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 what, that's what falling in, in, that's a part of falling in love. Yeah. It's, it, you, know, you pass all these people on the street or in the, in the campus or something like that, and you don't register most of them, you know, they just kind of go by. And then you see, you know, when probably a function of hormones, but you do see somebody that really excites you for a minute, and it's the same thing as encountering that Vermeer. Mm. And, th- and that quality in life. I mean, I, I can count so many times in, in remote parts of the world where I just had that same kind of looking around at my companions. Do you believe this? Yes. Do you believe where we are? And do you believe what that animal just did? And do you believe what this... Dutch guy did with light, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's all to me. It, it's it's all the same. And and a person who has had th- that experience in their life of being lit up by another person or by an event has an experience with a book or an experience with a piece of music, and like the snap of your fingers, they know again in say middle age what they meant, what they want their life to mean, That's because they feel that internal reorganization, reconstitution that comes from an exposure to the arts. My question about all this is why are the arts so marginalized in, in academic institutions and in daily life? Why are the arts seen as more or less a kind of form of entertainment instead, uh, instead of uh, in part the spiritual foundation of a culture? I don't have an, uh, an answer for that. I, I don't, they're not marginalized in my life, nor are they marginalized in the lives of so many people that I care about. And I see, uh, for example, as the conductor of the La Jolla Symphony and Chorus, which is an, not a professional ensemble, it's an ensemble of amateurs. And it's an it's a, it's a orchestra that has been in existence now for more than 60 years, and it's populated by people who would give anything to play. They would give, a, they pay to play. They would come through 
any kind of inclement weather or any kind of obstacle in order to be at a rehearsal. So you're looking at, when I look out on the ensemble that, I've, that I'm so occupied with here, I'm looking at people for whom art is the, the source of, of inspiration. And it is not a, it's not a gig, it's not a professional right. thing. It doesn't, right. it doesn't have to be calibrated relative to the rest of life. It, it doesn't get weighed. It is simply that light that really, that, that shines inside of every single person that's, that's there. And I think that one starts to lose the arts when, when you use the traditional metrics of what things are worth. If you start to calibrate what an artist is worth, or a, an object of art, in the same way that we talk about commodities that can be bought, sold, or traded up, then it doesn't make sense. No. But if you talk about, I mean, look at what had happened to in the, in the time of Bach. We know the name Brandenburg. Do you know the names of other rich people who had things named after themselves? The reason we know the name Brandenburg is because Brandenburg commissioned from Bach the concerti. And so Brandenburg, by attaching his name to a piece of art, is eternal in a way that he who shall not be named at this moment putting his name on a gold-plated apartment building will right. never be et eternal. <laughs> right. That will be forgotten. Right. But the Brandenburg Concerti will never be forgotten. No, so Brandenburg trumped him. Brandenburg okay. trumped Thank you. <laughs> we'll just let that <laughs> go out there for a second. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I, I don't know how. I mean, I come from a a family of farmers, not artists. And my father, we had a, uh, when I told my father I was going to be a, and not just a musician, a classical musician, and not just a classical musician, a classical percussionist. And he wanted to know who else there were who were a classical percussionist. I said, there really aren't any. <laughs> and the look on his face, the honest farmer that he was, uh, was just almost unbearable to me. And it was really only many years later bef when, when we actually uh, had a sort of rapprochement that way because he didn't really understand. So diving into that sea where your only choice is to swim until, s until you hit something to grab onto right, right. was probably the single scariest but also probably the single smartest thing I ever did because th I never thought about how to leap from place to place to place and so that meant that I never looked at music as a, as a, as a path to success. I started being a musician sure that success was impossible and I spent 25 years that way and, um, and, and so that was a great thing and, and uh, I don't know if you have anything similar. No, I would say yes. that. Um I was hiding out in graduate school, finishing a master's degree in English and thinking, what am I going to do? Um, I was writing, you know, uh, this is pretty scary thought, you might want to stand back a little bit. <laughs> Fifty years ago this month, my first stories were published. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Fifty years ago. I thought I was 50, but <laughs> apparently not. The work that I was doing as a writer filled me with something and I felt so, uh, I felt I had a long way to go <laughs> to learn anything. But um, I, I didn't know, I, I, I didn't know how I could put food on the table writing. I mean, yeah. I just didn't see how it could work. So I did the, the, the pro forma thing, which was to start work on an MFA in creative writing. And then I, who knew zero about writing, would be teaching younger people about writing. <laughs> um, 
But I, it, it, I, I left that MFA program almost immediately because whatever was going on in there was of no interest to me. Mm. I, I wanted to be in the world that I was creating with language and sink or swim, and it's still the same way. Um, I never thought of it as uh, a job. I, I've always thought of it as it's a way of life. It's, it's the way I come to life. Um, I feel psychically safe in front of the typewriter. Th that's the safest place for me um, because uh, in, in the same way my the keys and the typewriter are worn out from these particular fingers and fingernails, there's, there's a worn surface where my mind is encountering language and knowing immediately why something is um, dissonant. Mm -hmm. and and uh, how to and how to make it um, how to get the dissonance out of it and the the idea that i was th somebody said to me once it's a great a great observation there are those who want to write and there are those who want to have written huh. there are people that want to be known as writers and have i don't know prizes or whatever but it, the desire is not to write or, or as you said, and I and I'm comfortable with that actually. That to to story tell, uh. to, to be telling of stories. But you know, ep I, I I used to do this much more than I do now. But usually, when I would immerse myself in another cultural setting, I would ask people, mostly traditional people, what do you mean by story? What what is what what is that person in your culture, and how how does that person distinguish herself from other people, what do they do, and how are they, wh where is, if you will, their authority in mm -hmm. your culture? And there are endless engaging answers, which are better, I think, than many I've heard in my own culture. Um, one of them is, uh, in the Eastern Canadian Arctic, the language is Inuktitut, and the Inuktitut word for storyteller is Isumutak, and it means the person who creates the atmosphere in which wisdom reveals itself. Mm. So it, it's not about you, the storyteller. It's about you're creating the atmosphere where the wisdom that we all possess, that belongs to all of us, is suddenly seen again. We, we see it again. We're reminded of again. Mm. Story, story is the great enemy of forgetfulness. Mm. I mean, the, the, it must be that the real Achilles heal of consciousness is that we forget. We, we want to mean this in our lives and, and we, you, you walk away from an argument with somebody and you say, why did I ever say that? I, how could I, I, you know, well what you did was forget who you are or actually not who you are but who you want to be. Mm -hmm. what, is you, what kind of, of uh, ethical person you aspire to be? What kind of integrity you want? So this idea that you you, you create the atmosphere in which the thing that keeps us alive and from perishing becomes visible to us again, and then we know what we should be doing. So another, another time, uh, a, a man said to me, a, a Cree man in, a, in a, uh, a town called Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories, he said, for us, as long as the stories that you tell help, then you're the storyteller. Hmm. And if the stories that you tell don't help, then you're not the storyteller. 
even if you say you are. <laughs> I said, that's, that's a difficulty in my culture. We have a lot of people who are telling us they're the storytellers, but really they're just in business. You know. Do you, does that resonate at all for you as a musician? That it, it, it does, and, I, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to ask you this because it seems to me that, that the great challenge for artists is to, is to get beyond the art. In other words, to make the thing you do connect with the life you lead. And you know, we, we've, we've assiduously refrained from talking about our mutual friend John Luther Adams, but maybe this is a good time to talk about John Let's talk a about bit. John. We can talk about John in the first place, if you mind a shameless plug, on, on, uh, on Friday I'll play his percussion uh, solo in at seven o'clock in the in the music department. But I also see Matthew, and I'm reminded that that John is going to be here in the in in the winter and spring installing um, uh, a piece for the Stewart Collection. So we've had John in in the in the air here. And the thing that John and I talk about, and I think he's so successful at this, is that he makes his art reach into real life. Yes. But without it becoming a kind of facile tool in the hand in the hand so he he, refer, he stays just this he, he stays this side of that boundary where it has it ceases it, it, it never becomes a kind of political art you know written in 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 large letters with you know quotation marks around it it it's more subtle it's more it's more suave and it's more and it's much richer than that and so what i love about john's music is that he forces us to think about the life that you will lead once you leave the concert hall. And this is what oh, his sound is. Oh, that's very well said. And, um, I mean, I think Armory Schaefer, the other, another great composer, said that human beings don't have ear lids. So nature didn't give us anything that we can use to block the sounds right. out. Right. And so it's the way in which, if you really need to communicate with something, with someone, sound is the, is the way to do it. And... And John just teaches me every single time I play his music that sound doesn't stop at the lip of the concert stage. Right. It is, it's a part of life. And we, we go to great efforts to block it out, don't we? I mean, we, we wear earbuds when we... I mean, I, I hike very often at Torrey Pine State Park and I see everybody with ear, earbuds and yet there are long waves crashing on the beach and there are birds right. singing. I think, what are you listening to? Is it like... Slipknot or Ludacris or uh, I, I don't understand and so John has helped me understand that there is more to the world than or let's put it this way that that boundary between art as a profession and art as a, a, an act of living is an artificial one and it's meaningless it, it should be effaced and I, I think that that's part of what our responsibility is in the 21st century as artists and writers is to bring that back into mainstream life that if you um, if you're going to satisfy your own desire as a human being to be good in the world you have to understand you have to come to an understanding that you can't do it alone mm. and the way to not do it alone is to become immersed in this quest for coherence um, that that is that is like a a, a, a foundational um, rhythm underneath everything in 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 the in the world. There's a or, or in the arts rather. There, there's there's some way in walking through a museum where 
the temporal and spatial framework is entirely your own. You can be closer or further away. You can uh, walk and look at something and then walk away from it. You can do it out, out of sequence, quote, out of sequence. It's a stimulus, and you can move around in it in any way you want. Um, and when you do that, you, you find out what it is that you need out of this collection of art that triggers again your understanding of, of what it, how, you, what it, what it, how you wish to be in the world. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's, it's revitalizing. But I, I think that, um, at least from my point of view, that, you know, where you, you and I have a privilege a lot of people don't have. You live in an environment where what you do is understood and honored um, in, in much of the world it's not. It's not known. Um, it is in traditional societies. It's buried a little yes. bit deeper for you as a visitor. But the function of an artist, the responsibility of the artist to the community is much better understood in traditional societies than it is in ours. I think, and you know, how many of us uh, became artists and writers and, and caused our parents consternation? Because what we were doing didn't didn't immediately make money or create a, an, a, a, a clear path to a successful career. But that's not, as you said before, that's not, that's not why we're doing this. Mm -mm. We're, we're doing this because we understand that the passion to make something beautiful is as essential to human life as the breathing of oxygen. Mm -hmm. with, with, uh, without it, you, you, you turn into the very darkness that you want your life to oppose. Would you... Would you be willing to read something? I'm, that would that would make uh, I think all of us quite happy. So I um, I just happen to have something. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little bit of story behind this. Many of you know uh, Bill McKibben, um, a journalist and extraordinary man, who among many other things founded 350.org. 350.org takes its name from the idea that if our atmosphere has more than 350 parts per million of CO2 um, among all the gases that are there, then we're in big trouble. We're, of course, up over 410 parts per million, I think, now. But Bill made an effort five or six, maybe seven years ago to have as many countries as possible concentrate for one day on global climate change and what they were going to do about it in that country. So he asked a couple of writers and poets if we would write exactly 350 words about global climate change. And so, I don't know, six or eight of us or something did. But I told Bill that I was uh, kind of bored with 350 or 350,000 words about global climate change and I didn't really feel motivated to go into that material, but perhaps I could write a piece of fiction. And I heard Bill at the other end seize, because he didn't know, what? <laughs> so I, I did. So this is a piece called The Trail, and it's triggered by this desire to, uh, uh, Bill's desire to awaken us, or to inform us, or to sensitize us to some of the issues in th exactly 350 words.
So this is the trail. On a winter afternoon, along a trail in the Sierra Madre, in the state of Mensajero, beneath an immense rampart of rising cumulonimbus cloud, a deeply imperfect man bent over to collect a small piece of black glass. He recognized its kind, obsidian, a thick sliver of it. When the molten interior of the earth is thrown into the frigid sky and cools quickly, it becomes a stone like this. People say of its edges that no knife is sharper and of its color that it is transparent but bottomless, like the seas, so it cannot be rendered on paper or canvas. The man turned the spalled flake over in the palm of one hand with the fingers of the other. He tested the edge with his thumb and held it up to the sun. He knew of no volcanoes in these mountains, but the trail was many centuries old and people had carried red coral, abalone shells, and turquoise up and down it for generations. Someone dropped this, he thought in the time when his grandfather was alive, or in the year of his own birth, or a pilgrim might have dropped it only days ago. It glittered in his palm like sunlight in ice, and he wondered as the heaving clouds encroached on the sun and the shard of glass darkened what his obligations were. Should he give it back to the trail or pocket it for the single daughter he was traveling to see. In another age, he would not have hesitated to take it to the girl. Now he felt he must put it back, even if later someone else might take it. He believed he had come upon a time in his life when everything, even the things of God, needed protection. When he met his daughter, he would tell her he had found a black tear in the dust of the narrow path and understood he must leave it be. And she would ask whose tear it was, and he would have to use his imagination in the way his people had once done. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.